Our text for this Lord's Day comes from Revelation chapter 20 as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you today to give us your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. Fill me with your spirit that I might articulate these things clearly today. Deliver me from error. Deliver us all from distraction. And may we have your word implanted in our hearts so that we may walk in it, so we might please you and obey you. That is our prayer today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yosef Tone is a Romanian pastor who began his ministry in the 1970s when Romania was still under communist rule and when Romania was still part of the Soviet Union. Pastor Tone tells stories about his ministry in that time. He talks about the harassment and the threats he received from the secret police, the multiple arrests and the imprisonments, the intense interrogations, the beatings, the psychological torture he endured for preaching the gospel, each of which only served to strengthen his resolve to serve Christ and to continue his ministry. He wrote that each imprisonment helped him form a clearer view of the biblical response to persecution. He said, when the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled and I said, sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory. You cannot threaten me with glory. The more the suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. There was one time where there was during a particularly harrowing sense of interrogation, Pastor Tone told his inquisitors that spilling his blood would only serve to water the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I told the interrogator, you should know that your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Now here's how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tape all over the country. When you shoot me or crush me, whichever way you choose, you only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you killed me. Go on and do it. Eventually, the secret police left him alone. There was one officer who thought he could succeed where everyone else failed. One communist uh, secret police officer, he, he offered uh, the pastor a choice. He said, either stop preaching and take this secular job or go to, uh, go, go to a prison camp for the rest of your life. And uh, Pastor Tone responded, I asked my God and he wants me to continue to be a preacher. 
Now I have to make one of the two of you angry, and I decided it is better to make you angry than God. And after that, the communist uh, gave up. He couldn't do anything with him, and he said to, to Pastor Tone, go and preach. And uh, he was left alone until he was exiled from Romania in 1981. And then he spent the rest of his life touring and preaching and writing uh, and, and speaking. Christians who care more about pleasing God than angering tyrants expose the impotence of the state. The oppressor's most powerful weapon is violence, but violence cannot defeat people who are fearless of suffering and death. Christians who are willing to suffer put tyrants to shame. We say, what can you do to me? If you kill me, you send me to the feet of Jesus. That's a promotion. I don't see how that is, is a terrible outcome. In our study of the book of Revelation, we've come to the section where we're now seeing the description of Christ's governance with his saints over the nations. And we find here in the section that we just read that it is the martyrs who rule. Those who refuse to worship the beastly empire, those who refuse to take its mark, those who haven't compromised like Pastor Tone, they are the ones who live and reign with Christ. The millennial kingdom is ruled by those who have faithfully endured through tribulation. And let's quickly recap and remember where we are in this study. Last week, we opened chapter 20, which describes the binding of Satan and the reign of Christ with his saints for a thousand years. And we looked at places where the number 1,000 is almost never a precise uh, accounting of, 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 a, of an amount. The number 1,000 throughout the scriptures is used poetically and symbolically for a vast undefined period of time. We even have been reading this book the whole time from the first verse of Revelation. This is a book spoken in symbol. These things are taken and signified. Revelation is written in the, in the language of symbol, and so the number 1,000 is a poetic and symbolic number, meaning lots and lots and lots and lots, an undefined, vast period of time. So, so when God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, or when he says, I show mercy to a thousand generations, that is a, a vast, uh, uh, limitless, uh, a vast undefined period of time. So when does this reign of Christ with his saints and the binding of Satan occur? Well, as we've studied through the text, we've been following this timeline through the book of Revelation. We have seen the bringing down of the old world of the old covenant. The harlot city, Jerusalem has been judged. The temple has come down. Everything has been wrapped up with regard to God's dealings with old covenant Israel. Christ has established his kingdom. The world is different now. All of those things have changed. All of those things have, have happened. And then we have this reign of Christ with his saints. And then comes the, the final judgment. Then comes the resurrection and the, and the judgment. So that's where, that's where this thousand-year golden age of the gospel, the age where Christ reigns with his saints, that's where it comes between the establishment of the kingdom and the final judgment. Well, the kingdom has been established in Christ. Jesus reigns now, 
And the final judgment has not happened yet, which means that this describes the time that we are living in now. The old world has been folded up, Christ's kingdom has been established, but the final judgment has not yet come. So we are in this time that that Revelation 20 is describing. And yet you might ask, well, in what way possibly could Christ, uh, could, could Satan be bound in this present world? You see, there are two chief characteristics of this kingdom. One is that Satan is confined and the second is that the martyrs reign. And you say, well, how is Satan bound when there's all kind of, you know, there's all kinds of mayhem and temptation and corruption in the world right now? How can you say that, that, that Satan is confined in any sense? Well, there are two answers that we saw last week. One is that Satan is bound in a very specific way in the text. He is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations like he used to. Once he had this power over the, the empires of the world and he could deceive them into all manner of paganism and superstition and idolatry. No longer, however, do we have temples in civilized uh, societies. We don't have temples to gods of marble and wood and iron. Those things have passed. You go into dark places of the world where the gospel has not penetrated and you still see some of those things. But the deception of Satan over the minds of men generally to worship idols of, of stone and wood, those, that, that's past. He can no longer deceive the nations like he used to. And that's just one evidence. Are men deceived? Absolutely. A lot of our deception is self-deception. We do a pretty good job of deceiving ourselves because our heart is wicked and leads us into wickedness. But uh, Satan's power over the nations has been significantly limited. Uh, something significant has shifted since the first century. Satan can't unify the nations to oppose Christ. Satan can't oppose the advance of the gospel. Now, when the gospel comes to a society, the strong man is bound so that the works of Satan are plundered and destroyed. We saw that uh, last week. Several times Jesus tells these parables where the strong man is bound and then his house is plundered. Well, that's what's happening to Satan. Satan is bound and, and the nations are plundered and the works of Satan are destroyed. So that's one way that Satan is bound. The second answer to the question, how can you say Satan is bound in this time? Well, is that Satan is further restrained. The slack in his chain is taken out when the church is faithful to do her work. The key in the chain that, that Jesus comes carrying in Revelation 20 are the very same keys and chains he gives his church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, when he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. The church is given the authority to bind Satan and to close up the pit of hell so that the gates of hell do not prevail. When we go to lock up the gates of hell, when we're faithful and we obey the Lord Jesus and we exercise the authority he's given us through worship and in proper administration of the sacraments and the proper and clear preaching of the word, when, when we're using the authority Christ has given us, we shut up the pit of hell and we bind Satan. 
But when the church is lazy, when we let all kinds of wickedness run rampant in the church, well, then wickedness is more prevalent in the world, which is also what's going on right now. But when the church is faithful, she seals up the pit and she shuts down the work of Satan and he can't do anything about it. The gates of hell do not prevail when we lock them up. So that's, that's our answer. That's what we're, when, when we say, how is Satan bound? Well, in that way, that's the, that's the explanation. These two characteristics of the millennial kingdom are the inverse of each other. That uh, Satan is bound and the martyrs reign, you see, because Satan has been dethroned and Satan has been chained and the martyrs have been unchained and they have been enthroned. There are several passages in the New Testament that speak to the disarming and the chaining of the demons. This, this word chains does not only show up in Revelation 20. In Colossians 2, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. In 2 Peter 2, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. In Jude 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So the ministry of Jesus chained the demons. That's why whenever he comes, when Jesus shows up, the demons cry out in fear uh, whenever Jesus gets close because he stirs them up, he exposes them, and then he binds them. There's this scene in uh, Mark chapter five. Remember the demon-possessed man who uh, the townspeople try to bind him in chains, but he keeps breaking them. Well, because they don't have the power and the authority of Jesus when they try to bind the demons and when they try to bind the demon possessed. So he keeps breaking them. And then Jesus comes along and he looses the man and he binds the demons. He, uh, uh, he puts the demons into that uh, herd of, of pigs and they drive off the mountain. He limits the demons and he loosens the man. And that's what's going on in Revelation 20. The, 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 the demons and the kingdom of darkness is chained and the saints are unchained. God has limited and chained and restrained and buried the demons in darkness, all the while breaking the chains of the saints, overriding the verdicts of tyrants. In the book of Acts, there are all these profound scenes of chains breaking or falling off. Herod has Peter bound with two chains, which I always think is just hilarious. That Peter is this you know, crazy, wild, violent man, this terrorist who needs two chains to bind him. Well, evidently, even those are not effective because when the angel of the Lord shows up to the present, those chains just fall off. And Paul and Silas are chained up in prison for preaching the gospel, but there's an earthquake and their chains fall off. In the epistles, Paul refers to his chains about a dozen times. He says, I'm chained, but the word of God is not chained. He says, I am an ambassador in chains. It, it's almost like Paul's chains are this um, a point of self-deprecating humor whenever he brings them up because he knows who has the ultimate authority over the chains. The spirit who loosened the bonds of death for Jesus is the spirit who unlocks the disciples' chains, who is the one who chains the devils. The chains are taken off the saints and they're put on 
the demons. So that's the first aspect of the millennial kingdom, the binding of Satan. And the second aspect is the reign of the martyrs, which we have before us now. I pray that you're okay in this section, just taking a few verses at a time. We have been flying through the last several chapters, but here we are to a point where it really takes some detailed thought and some contemplation to get through here. So we're going to ride the brakes through the end of chapter 20, and then we'll pick it up, uh, I, I think, when we get to chapter 21. We'll see. Or else we'll still be in Revelation in the year 2025, and we'll just take a word at a time. And, uh, and I don't know how it's going to work out. But today, we're just going to take a few verses because these are full of stuff that we need to know. So verse four, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. These are the same thrones that John saw in the first part of Revelation that were occupied by angelic elders. Uh, God had an angelic presbytery before him and an, an angelic uh, council sitting before him that ruled and advised and counseled in heaven's courts. God would do a thing and they would praise. God would, uh, God would say something and they would respond. But one of the themes of Revelation that we've seen over and over is that heaven is being populated by men because the angels that sat on those thrones, as Revelation has progressed, the angels have gotten up, they've left those thrones and they've gone out to uh, loose something, or they've gone out to blow a trumpet, or they've got up to go pour out a bowl of wrath. And so throughout the book of Revelation, the angels have gotten out from their thrones and they go do what the Father tell them to do. And now, because of the work of Jesus, because now men have access to the heavenly sanctuary, the perfect sacrifice has been made. Now that man can stand before God, now that the man, Jesus, sits at the right hand of the Father, now the church can stand in God's presence as well. Now the church triumphant, all the saints who have departed from this life, join Jesus and they make up the court's of heaven. And now man is joined in the body of Christ to rule on earth as well. So we always have these two dimensions of the church's rule. We have the church triumphant, those who have gone on to their reward, those who have left this earth and have joined Christ, and the church militant, that's us. We who are still working and evangelizing and praying and worshiping on, on earth. So man is installed, enthroned with Jesus over all creation. Now, not only do they sit on thrones, but they are given judgment. Um, it's not that they just sit there and look pretty. They're given judgment, we're told. In, in 1 Corinthians um, remember when those church members in, in Corinth were suing each other, Paul says, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why don't you judge these things among yourselves? Don't you know that you will judge angels? A uh, man who was created lower than the angels has now in the ascension of Christ now has been exalted over all of the created order. So the angels have have uh, man was created lower than the angels, we read in the Psalms, but now man has been exalted over all of the created order. And so it follows that as man fills these thrones that were once occupied by angels, now our duties and our responsibilities are going to kind of reflect what they do. What have we seen angels doing so far in Revelation? We've seen angels 
um, loosing things on earth that Jesus has loosed in heaven. Jesus broke the seals on the book and then the angels go out and they perform the works of the loose seals on earth. Uh, the angels trumpet out the contents of the book that Jesus reads, just like I'm trying to trumpet out the word of God today, just like you trumpeted out the Psalms. You've trumpeted out the word of God today, and you're going to trumpet out the word of God this week when you correct your children, when you speak encouragement to your neighbor or your coworker, when you speak the word, words of the Lord and you apply them, you are doing the work that the angels did in trumpeting out the contents of the book. And then uh, the angels also pour out these bowls of uh, wrath, which apply the judgments of the book. In just a few minutes, we're going to each get a little tiny bowl, and uh, we're going to pour it out. We're going to pour it in our mouth. Uh, but that's a bowl of wrath if you're not in union with Christ. That's a bowl of judgment if you haven't confessed your sins. It's a bowl of life, and it's a bowl of blessing. It's a drinking bowl. It's a bowl of, of blessing if you belong to Jesus. But we get to pour out bowls too. You see, all of these things that the angels are doing are reflected in our work, and it all follows the sequence in our worship that the angels follow in Revelation, which we've, we've looked at many times. So men now sit on these thrones, and they're given judgment. Let's pick it up in the, in the next verse. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. When we last saw the martyrs, where were they? Remember, they were under the altar. They were crying out for vindication. How long, O Lord? And the answer to that question, how long, is a little longer. That was the answer. The Lord says, wait a little longer, rest a little longer until the rest of the martyrs will join you. There are more martyrs to come. And right after that, we saw the, 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 the sealing and the setting apart of, of 144,000 old covenant saints who were joined to Jesus, who were washed in the blood of the lamb, who were sealed with the mark of the lamb. And now they are harvested. Their works are finished. And now they join the first martyrs and all of these conquerors, these uncompromising soldiers in the army of the lamb, they all are entering into life and they reign with Christ for this 1,000 years, this, this long, uh, uh, undefined time. The church triumphant, all the departed saints who have left this world have ascended to share in Christ's rule. Paul picks up on this in 2 Timothy. What, Paul describes this. He says, this is a faithful saying. This is 2 Timothy 2.11. He says, this is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. So, so this uh, theme, you pick up on this throughout the scriptures, that the ones who endure are given a crown of life, that those who suffer are, are sitting on thrones. That, that you're rewarded with rule and authority when, when service to Jesus costs you something. Well, in what sense 
do these saints reign? What do they rule over? What, how, are they, how are they ruling? What do they rule over? Well, a few things we could think of. They, they reign with Christ over death, which can't threaten them anymore. Death is put under their feet. The death, death is no longer a threat. They reign with Christ over sin, which they have been delivered from. They reign, they reign with Christ over Satan, who can't touch them at all. In all these ways, they share in Christ's victory. They share in Christ's dominion. But let's take another step and think how they might also serve as a heavenly council around God's throne. Yahweh told his prophet Amos, he says, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. God reveals his secrets to the prophets. And then, and then in Amos chapter seven, he consults with Amos. God does a thing and Amos says, no, Lord, we can't take that right now. And and Yahweh relents. And then Yahweh does something else. And Amos says, oh, we, we just can't take that right now. And then, and then Yahweh relents. God listens to the voice of his prophets. You remember when God was determined to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he say? He said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he goes and he consults with Abraham. And that's where Abraham says, well, if there's this many faithful, maybe you shouldn't bomb the city. And uh, God says, well, let's see if there are that many faithful. And there weren't. He said, well, maybe if there's this many faithful. But God is consulting with his servant, Abraham. Um, if God consults with his saints on earth, would he not also communicate with his heavenly counsel around his throne? Does he tell them what he's about to do? And then they respond in praise, or maybe they respond in prayers for mercy, or maybe they respond in prayers for judgment, which we see them doing in Revelation. We see that God does a thing and the heavenly courts respond to what God is doing. Now, I want to be clear, there's never any indication anywhere in scripture that we can communicate with them or that they can hear us or that, or that they're watching over us. We can't pray to Aunt Martha or think that Uncle Leroy is watching over us or that we can talk to Uncle Leroy and say, Uncle Leroy, intercede for me. Again, why would we ever want to do that when we have a perfect mediator who is Jesus, we have direct access to him, and we have direct access to the ear and the heart of the Father through Jesus? Why would we want to go to any lesser mediator? So what I'm describing here in God counseling with his saints is intra-heaven communication, not, not inter-earth and heaven communication, but counsel that God gives and receives and works out with his, his heavenly saints. How else do they reign? If they're said to reign, what authority do they have? What, what, what counsel, what position do they have in heaven but that? That's, that's one way of trying to understand that and figure that out. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Who are the rest of the dead? Who are we talking about? Well, we've just read chapters and chapters of judgments that were poured out. The, the rest of the dead must be then the wicked who fell into the judgments that were poured out in all of these seals and trumpets and bowls. Those who were not united to Christ who were caught up in this destruction, they don't have rest and they don't have blessing and they don't, they don't have life. They're just waiting on the final judgment. 
In John chapter five, Jesus says, there will be a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. There's a resurrection of life for those who are in Christ and a resurrection of judgment for those who are in not. So in the meantime, these who do not live, they don't live again. They're they are kept in Hades until the final judgment, which is uh, which we hear more about in, in the rest of Revelation 20 when we get there. But verse 13, Revelation 20, 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each according to his work. So we'll get more information on what happens to them, but for now we know that the rest of the dead have no life. They have no communion in the life and the reign of Christ with his saints. And then at the end of verse 5, we get this sentence, which is an, uh, an odd verse break, this might ought to go in verse six, but you know, the verse breaks are not inspired. Uh, these are just a way to organize the text. But we get this sentence, this is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? What does this refer to? We gotta figure this out. Resurrection can refer to bodily resurrection, like when Jesus called Lazarus forth from his tomb, like when Jesus raised the little girl. Uh, resurrection can be individual bodily resurrection, or resurrection can be a reference to regeneration. Uh, when Paul says in Colossians 3 and in Romans 6, you have been raised to new life in Christ. His resurrection is our resurrection in that sense. So it could be bodily resurrection. It could be regeneration, or it could be national societal resurrection, renewal, like in Ezekiel. You know that famous scene, the valley of the dry bones, where the leg bone is connected to the hip bone and the hip bones connected to the uh, other, I don't know how they fit together. But that song comes from Ezekiel chapter 37. And listen to what he says. Uh, what, what, are, what do those bones represent? What's going on there? Uh, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. We ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says Yahweh, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and have performed it, says Yahweh. What is in view there is resurrection, but it's national resurrection. It's kingdom resurrection. It's societal resurrection. Now that finds fulfillment primarily and first with the return from exile in Babylon, but in a more full way when the new kingdom is formed with Christ at the center. And that's what we've just been reading about. We've just been reading about the establishment of the kingdom with Christ as the center. Satan has been pushed out. While Adam had given rule over the cosmos to Satan, Satan has now been evicted and now man has been reinstalled on the throne over creation. And this whole arrangement is the first resurrection. This whole arrangement is societal, national, kingdom resurrection. 
And it's in anticipation of the greater resurrection to come. It's the first resurrection, meaning there's another one coming. There's another greater resurrection to come. But this, this is the first resurrection is a description of everything that we've just seen. Verse six, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, we've got more than one resurrection. We've got more than one death. <laughs> Blessed is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. Uh, this is where sometimes if we were, I wish we were going through this in an adult Sunday school class where I could draw some things on a board and we could have questions and answers and we could discuss that and one day we might, we might be able to do that. But here, let's try to make this simple. We've got uh, more than one resurrection, we've got more than one death. What is the second death referring to? Well, this is pretty easy to identify because it's brought up three other times. Uh, in the letter to the church at Smyrna, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Over in chapter 20, which we're in now in verse 14, we hear about this again. Verse 14, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And then in chapter 21, verse 8, uh, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What is the second death? The second death is final and eternal punishment. So, so what we're reading here is that the one who has part in the first resurrection, the one who reigns with Christ in the kingdom of the resurrection is immune to the second death, the final death. We all die one time, but hopefully that's the only time we die. We don't die the second time. We're immune to final and eternal death in the eternal lake of fire, if we are in union with Christ, if we are part of that first resurrection kingdom. And so not only we're we immune to the second death, we'll, we'll be priests reigning with Christ for that long, increasingly glorious golden age between the establishment of the kingdom and the final judgment. So we've got two companies of rulers. We have the martyrs and the departed saints ruling from earthly, I'm sorry, ruling from heavenly thrones, joining in heaven's liturgy. And we have the saints who reign on earth, reflecting heaven's order, who eventually, when their works are complete, they join the rulers in heaven. Now, what do these saints rule over? What, what are we what are we ruling over? Is it just a title? Is it just are we just figureheads? We just get a crown so we get to pretend to be ruling over something? No. They rule over the realm that Satan is being forced out of. Satan is being deprived of his rule over the nations. Uh, we've heard the praise already in Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Occasionally you'll hear somebody real confused about this and they'll, they'll misunderstand what Jesus said. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, they think that what he's saying is that his kingdom is only spiritual or that his kingdom is only heavenly. And honestly, that is a much safer position to hold. If, if the kingdom of Christ does not exist to oppose any real evil on earth, if, if we're not called 
to change more than individuals, but to change and transform the society. If, if we're not called to teach people God's law, and if we are never to expect to see the effects of the gospel on government and education and arts and commerce, if, if none of that is in our job description, man, that would be such a load off my mind if we didn't have to do that, if, if the kingdom of Christ existed only in my head, and if it existed only on Sunday morning, man, we could, we could take a break the rest of the time. We wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to, you know, work on much of anything. But Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is irrelevant to the world. When he says my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying my kingdom is irrelevant to the world. What he's saying is my kingdom didn't come from this world. My kingdom is not derived from this present order and my authority doesn't come from this world, but my kingdom is in this world and it is over this world and it is conquering this world. Back in Revelation chapter five, verse 10, the heavenly court sings to Jesus, you have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. In the Great Commission, Jesus turns his church loose on the world. And here we see that those who live and reign with Jesus are specifically those whose commitment to Jesus has cost them something. If there's only a spiritual kingdom, if there's only a heavenly kingdom of Christ, if these saints only rule in a spiritual sense or in a mental sense, when would that ever bring the kingdom of Christ into conflict with the kingdom of men? When would it ever produce martyrs? How do you produce martyrs when something is only in your head? You can believe what you want in your head and go do whatever else you want. It just doesn't, it doesn't ever change anything. So you see, this sets the tone and the character of the kingdom of heaven. We are an army of martyrs. We are a kingdom of martyrs. And we serve the ascended, enthroned martyr, Jesus. This is what sets the kingdom of heaven apart from the kingdoms of the world and has continually frustrated all the nations and empires who despise the Lord Jesus, who don't wish to submit to his rule. This drives them crazy because obedience to the Lord Jesus inevitably brings us into conflict. And when there's a conflict, there's a choice. Will you serve God or will you serve men? And when you make your decision clear, I'm doing what God says. Men don't like it very much. And it will drive them mad. It will drive them so mad that they want to stop you. They want to take you out. And when they do that, that only exposes their weakness. That, that's how it is a historical fact that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ went from persecution under Nero to dominance over the empire with Constantine in a space of less than 250 years. How in the world did that happen? Well, it happened through the, the, the giving of the lives of the martyrs. Martyrdom only increased the influence of the church and martyrdom undermined confidence in Rome. As people sympathized with Christians and as the Lord Jesus defended and vindicated his church, the church went from, from persecution to acceptance to dominance because they were willing to die. 
So right from the beginning, this millennial kingdom is identified as a kingdom ruled by martyrs who imitate the martyr. And this immediately corrects any kind of thinking that the kingdom of Christ is fueled by carnal methods or carnal strategies. This is not the kingdom that comes by grasping for worldly power or wealth or political influence. Now, entering the political sphere is one valid way of taking dominion. It's one valid way of restraining evil. It's utilizing the liberties and the processes that God's grace has allowed us, and that's not illegitimate. However, if we enter the political sphere, we enter like we do any other sphere. We go willing to die. We go knowing that I'm going to be faithful, and when I'm faithful, they're going to try to kill me. There's going to come a point where I'm going to lose reputation or opportunity or status or influence because I'm going to say Jesus is king, and the people who are listening are not going to like it very much. And I'm okay with that. We go prepared to die. And this is true no matter what your calling is. If you go in the tech world, you need to go into it prepared to die. If you go into medicine or education or the sciences or customer service or law or accounting or the arts, you go to proclaim by your work and by your confession that Jesus is king. And when you do that, you are going prepared to die because that confession will require of you many times little deaths. You'll lose reputation. You'll lose respect. You'll possibly lose income. You'll lose advancement. You'll lose opportunities. But you know that that just comes with the territory. That comes with the territory of serving Jesus. You know already that the only way to gain your life is to lose it. You know that whatever you give up for the sake of Jesus and his name, you'll have restored to you a hundredfold. So it's fine. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to be a, a, a king or to reign in the tents of wickedness. And all along the way, we learn that rule in Christ's eternal kingdom and real dominion only comes by dying. When we practice self-governance, we die to ourselves. We learn how to say no to the flesh. When we govern our family sacrificially, we govern the church by dying for each other. And only after we do these things faithfully does God extend our rule further and give us more opportunities and bless our successes. It's, it's almost comedic when we talk about how we're going to fix the world. When Christians talk about how we could sort everything out and fix all the problems, when we don't have any control over ourselves, we don't have any self-governance, or we can't rule our families, we can't govern our families. When the church across the culture is in bad need of reformation, if we can't govern the church faithfully, why would the Lord Jesus give us the nations? If we can't govern ourselves, how are we to rule others? Uh, so this kingdom of martyrs grows first by dying to self, by mortifying our flesh, by living to Christ alone. Now, as I talk about this, you're probably thinking what I'm thinking, and that's this. I don't know about all this martyrdom stuff. Conflict and persecution and confrontation. You know what? I would just like to live a normal, peaceful life. I just want to do good work. I just want to raise a family. I want to educate my kids. I want to love my neighbors. I don't know if I'm cut out for all that risky stuff. That sounds scary and impossible. And I hear you, but don't underestimate how much all of that normal stuff I just described is so completely countercultural 
and how totally despised it is by the kingdom of darkness. Your faithful normalcy, your, your sweet normal family shakes the foundations of the culture of death. I don't think we realize what a threat we are to them and their life and their way of doing things and how inevitably just being normal is going to bring you into conflict. How if you're doing all of those things faithfully, you're already dying to the flesh. You're already living to Christ. You're already submitting to the Lord Jesus as king over your kids, over their education, over your career, over your finances, over your whole life. The more steadily faithful you are in all of that, the more the Lord tends to give you opportunities to stretch out a little bit more, to grow a little bit more. And you have these critical moments where you're forced either to obey Jesus or your sinful desires. You either obey Jesus or mammon. You either obey Jesus or the state. And authority and influence and glory flows to the one who submits to Jesus and rejects all others. So as terrifying as some of these martyrdom scenarios sound, you get to practice for that moment of truth today. You get prepared for it in worship. And then when you go home and when you go to work in small ways every single day, as you deny your lustful appetites, as you serve Jesus, as you deny your flesh and serve Jesus, as you deny your rotten attitude and you serve Jesus, you learn to die as a martyr by dying every day in all of these ways. And that's what we're being shown here. We are enlisted in an army of martyrs. We are citizens of a kingdom built on a foundation of martyrs. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We don't have a life outside of Christ. Well, what do you have outside of Jesus? And so then if my life is already hidden with Christ in God, what can any man do to me? What are you gonna threaten me with? You're gonna threaten me with glory? Okay, yeah, I'll take that deal. Every time, I'll take glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for ordering history, and we thank you for revealing this to us through your word. We pray that we would indeed be faithful to die in small ways, as you have called us to, to mortify our flesh and to grow in life in Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen our resolve and give us confidence in these moments of truth to follow Jesus and oppose the kingdom of death and darkness. Bind Satan, crush him under our feet, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.